0: Ready to enjoy the word together? It's part of how we worship the Lord here at the Bible Church. So if you'll grab your Bible that you brought with you today, and if you didn't bring a Bible, let us supply you with one so that you will have a Bible. Just raise your hand. Let's, let's head for the book of First Peter and chapter two, church family. First Peter chapter two. There's a note page in your bulletin. I'll ask you to grab a hold of that if you would as well. And today we return to our study series. As you can see there on that note page. Called exiles, our verse by verse journey through the apostle peter 's first epistle. Now we have been away from first Peter for many weeks as we moved through the Christmas and the new year 's holidays. We shared a morning with Brandon uh, as he brought a farewell for us. We honored the sanctity of life on a particular Sunday, and then last time we focused our attention on the church as part of our vision and planning Sunday, so all of those things have happened since we were last in the book of First Peter. But today we finally get to step back into our study series. And so if you're visiting us today, maybe perhaps for the first time, and for all of us who haven't been here for a little while, we are taking up this morning verses 13 to 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2, which I would like to read for us. We'll put them up on the screen for you as well. But uh, please have your Bible open to 1 Peter 2. everyone love the brotherhood fear God honor the emperor and we're going to stop right there and my prayer and my hope is that the Holy Spirit of God who gave these words to us would be pleased to to just bring them church family into practical reach for us this morning if that if that could happen it's going to be a good day in God's word together so because we've been away from First Peter now for many weeks, remember with me that, that Peter's writing to 1st century Christians who are being persecuted intensely by the surrounding culture that they live in simply because they've determined to believe in and live for the Lord Jesus. They're living as, as spiritual exiles and therefore the title, even as they live in the towns and villages that they've, they've grown up in and been in their whole lives It's become dangerous to be a Christian in Asia Minor in the first century. So Peter writes to encourage these believers and to equip them and and challenge them to stay the course and, and not cave in to the pressure of this really intense persecution. He's kind of like a coach, we've talked about this before, who's urging his team to stand fast, to never give up, no matter what, to, to just really hang in there. That's, that's what drives this letter. So now in true coaching fashion, in verse 9 of chapter 2, Peter tells every Christian, ancient and modern, who we really are by the mercy of God and because of our faith in the Lord Jesus who are we today, you and me, who love the Lord Jesus? Well, verse nine, Peter says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation god 's personal treasured possessions. How does that make you feel? Yeah, pretty good, it should because this is who we really are in Christ today. We are these these four things and and we 've unpacked each one of these special terms we, when we were in this, this section uh, a while back. And then Peter says this in the second half of verse 9. He says, So that we are all of these things, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have been given the incredibly great privilege, church family, of proclaiming that God has done heroic things that's what that word excellencies means if you remember we were in that section and that he is our hero we we have the privilege of proclaiming God is our hero I don't know if you think of him as your hero but he's your hero through what he has done through Jesus Christ. So we proclaim the excellencies of the one who has rescued us out of spiritual darkness and brought us into the light, into the life of Jesus. That's our great privilege. That's our great uh, responsibility, says Peter, to proclaim Jesus and to proclaim the Lord, to play our part in making Jesus known to a, a hostile, spiritually dead and dying world. And so... In in this verse, Peter's thinking evangelism. He's thinking evangelism thoughts. Us being personally involved in in spreading God's good news that any sinner can have a new, forgiven, personal, life-changing, transforming relationship with God through faith in Jesus, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him. Peter's thinking evangelism thoughts. Now, having said that, we might expect Peter then to give us in these verses that follow verse 9 a a clear gospel presentation that we could easily memorize and then share verbally with anybody when we had the opportunity to do that. The Roman road or maybe the four spiritual laws or something else, that this is what Peter would give us, a really neat nifty little gospel outline that we could Memorize and then share because so often we think that a verbally verbal sharing of our faith is what evangelism means that if you're going to be in evangelism do that at all you're going to be talking about Jesus It always goes in a verbal direction but that's not where Peter goes here at all because this isn't what Peter thinks when he thinks about evangelism a verbal presentation that's not where Peter's going to go with us today. For him, the greatest proof of the presence of Jesus in someone's life, the greatest evidence of the transforming power of Jesus' cross and his resurrection is found in how we live and only later in what we say. Would you agree with that? that is, that's the truth of it right there. The words of the gospel are important, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. We need to be able to talk about our Savior with anybody who asks who he is, what he's done, appropriated into our lives by grace, through faith. We need to be able to talk about Jesus. But the words, they come later. They need to come. They must come, but they come later. And they confirm the gospel that we've already been living out. That's Peter's frame of mind. In this moment. And that's why in the verses that follow. Peter doesn't give us that nifty little gospel presentation. That we can memorize. He takes us into four places. Where people can see. The power of the gospel. Through a life that's being transformed by Jesus. This is why church family. I titled this study this morning. When evangelism doesn't look like evangelism. Peter challenges us to think of evangelism as a lifestyle and and not just as a message that we deliver. So what are these four places, these four arenas where we live out a clear gospel message, perhaps without ever verbally sharing the gospel? What are these areas? Well, the first is in our individual personal lives. Peter's going to hit on that in verses 11 and 12. The second is in our civic life verses 13 to 17. The third is in our vocational lives, our work life, verses 18 to 20. And the fourth arena, well, that's in our marriages, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. For Peter, our personal, civic, vocational, and marital lives are where evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism actually happens. So back in early December, we spent a morning with verses 11 and 12 and how our individual personal lives proclaim the real Jesus. So we're not going to go over all of that ground again. I know it's been a while, but, but that's, that's, that's the area of life. We've already kind of talked about that. But please recall with me what Peter said to us way back there in early December. Verse 11. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as as spiritual exiles in a culture that's hostile to the Jesus that you love, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those who don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see. Underline that word. Circle it. Highlight it. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Live in such a way that your personal life makes Jesus worthy of investigation. That's the challenge. That's the call from Peter. As odd as it may sound, evangelism begins right here with a transformed life that is evidenced by how we're living for Jesus. Then, Holy Spirit-directed, Peter next takes us into the civic arena of our lives to that place that I'm going to refer to there on your note page as citizenship evangelism. Have you ever heard of that? Citizenship evangelism? No, because I made it up. (laughs) Citizenship evangelism. You talk about an area of our lives, church family, where we rarely, if ever, think evangelism thoughts. That the way we behave as citizens in our country and in our culture is either affirming Jesus or contradicting him. For Peter, this is the second place where evangelism doesn't look like evangelism. Our civic life how we live as citizens here in our country. Verse 13, it's worth a second read. Let's, let's take it up one more time. Now that you kind of have the framework, here's where Peter goes. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Citizenship evangelism. Let's talk about that for a little bit together. Now, church family, remember who the emperor is when Peter writes these words in late 64 A.D. The emperor is Nero, one of the most evil, twisted leaders in all of world history. I mean, he was evil personified, murderous one of the most notorious of all Roman rulers. In July of 64 AD, he blames the Christians for the great fire that burned down Rome, burned it to the ground, left a million people homeless. Nero, burn, Nero actually started this fire and he blames the Christians for having started it, if you know your, if you know your ancient history. Well, as a result of that, intense, brutal, deadly persecution of all Christians begins. Anti-Christian feelings that have been perhaps simmering under the surface for a while in the culture, man, they burst out in in violent action and hatred. And the the, the persecution spreads throughout the whole Roman Empire and into the lives of the people who are living in Asia Minor, where Peter is writing this letter. This would be modern-day Turkey. In that time, it was Asia Minor. And so Peter's writing these Christians who are experiencing this persecution. So suffice it to say that that after July of 64 AD, anyone anywhere in the Roman Empire identifying with Jesus was no longer welcomed, no longer respected or valued or protected. Now you're a dangerous rebel. Now you are an exile. Now you are a non-citizen. For Peter, there was only one way for these first century Christians to to respond to this kind of climate. Only one way to prove that the emperor's charges were false and the people's perceptions of them were wrong. And that was to live such a godly life personally, individually, and such a, a virtuous life civically that any accusations leveled against them, Simply couldn't be supported. They couldn't be validated. They couldn't be be held up by their attitudes and their words and their actions, transformed through faith in Jesus. Peter says these Christians can silence their critics and perhaps even compel some to think about Jesus as Savior and Lord. He's thinking evangelism. Church family, do I even need to say that Peter's instructions here are very timely and very relevant for us today. For we are living in a culture that, as you know, is is growing almost by the day more intolerant of any notion that the Bible is the ultimate source of truth for us. More intolerant of the the fact that the God of the Bible is to be honored. He's to be revered. And that we're all sinners and we need a Savior and his, His name is Jesus. Our culture doesn't want to hear that. Increasingly doesn't want to hear that. It's an unpopular message. So, so how do we speak into this growing cultural hostility and resistance? Well, Peter would say, among other things, be the very best citizens you can be with God's help. Have you ever thought about that as an evangelism strategy? Perhaps the hostility of some will be softened, he says. Better still, perhaps the hearts of some are going to turn to Jesus. Citizenship evangelism. And it all begins with a command, as you see there on your note page. It begins with a command, verses 13 and 14. Be what? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good this command which is coming from the holy spirit it's not peter's thought here this is this is coming right from the heart of god this command is a clear and uncluttered instruction to us it's not a it's not a suggestion is it it's a command be subject It comes from the the Greek military term that meant to arrange in ranks under a commander. Maybe the best rendering would be to say, put yourselves in the place of submission under. Put yourself in the place of submission under. Well, under what? Under what? Under the governing entity or institution, Peter says, that rules in the country where you are. Or if you happen to be in another country, for whatever reason, place yourself in submission under the governing authority there. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. It's what we're supposed to do. Now, there are some professing Christians, you may even know one or more, who like to pull out when we talk about these kinds of things and submitting ourselves to the government, they like to pull out Philippians 3.20. And, and play that card. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from, from it we're waiting for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm no longer bound by the laws of this world because I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> yeah. Church family, please don't be one of these card carriers. Can I just ask you not to do that? It's true, spiritually, our ultimate eternal home is with the Lord Jesus, but we still live in this world, right? We still live in this world and we are citizens of this country and we are subject to her rules and her laws for how this, this society is going to function and maintain order. That doesn't change the fact that, that our our passport reads heaven because we, we love the Lord Jesus, but we are to submit to the governing authorities. In fact, the very same Apostle Paul who writes this glorious truth in Philippians 3.20, that we're citizens of heaven, he also writes the words of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, which I will invite you to take your Bible and turn to now, if you would. Keep your finger tucked in First Peter, but would you run to, to, to Romans chapter 13 with me? And I love it when I get to hear the pages turn church family. I know we put these verses up on the screen, but don't be lazy. Let's go to Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Check this out with me. Same Paul that wrote Philippians 3.20 says, let every person be, what's the next word? Subject to the governing authorities. Is there anything ambiguous about that? Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. We'll stop there. It's hard to argue with Paul or Peter here. Genuine follower of Jesus. Put yourself in a place of submission under the governing authorities that that God Himself has put in power where you are, where you live. I'm this is not a suggestion this is a command. And then if you flip your note page over that immediately raises a question for us. Okay, so so what is the extent of this command? How far does it reach? What does it encompass? Well, if we return to 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to here it comes to what? To every human institution, be it the emperor or the governors that he appoints. Paul says in 13.1, we just read it a moment ago, let what? Every person be subject to the governing authorities, including those who bear the sword. Essentially, for Paul, that meant the police who enforced the rules, protecting the citizens, arresting the bad guys, and watching out for the good guys. Now, both Peter and Paul could have said, submit to most human institutions. Submit to the majority of governing authorities. They could have, right? But that is not what they write. Every person... Every lover of the Lord Jesus puts himself in a place of submission to every governing institution. It's clear, isn't it? That's the extent, that's the reach of this command. Church family, what does every mean? It means every, doesn't it? It really does. I don't know how else you improve on that. Every. It's all inclusive. Every human government, along with all of its ruling and enforcing agencies, in our case, that would mean from Washington all the way to the local city council and law enforcement here in our region, they are the governing systems that God has appointed. Romans 13, 2 said that. God's appointed them over us in this earthly Realm And we are to submit to them. God places these governing powers over a society so its people can live orderly, peaceable, protected lives that allow them to thrive. Our government is a gift from God to us. Even though you might not think about that so much. Okay, but... But what if the governing authority is a brutal dictator who cares only about himself? Allah Nero. Or what if what if the government, the ruling authority, is a brutal military regime. Or a, a communist Christian repressing republic, then what? Then what are we supposed to do, Church? Be subject. Be subject. That's exactly right. That's the command. And that's how far it reaches. Again, who was the emperor in Peter's day? It was Nero. He was a certifiable megalomaniac. Personally responsible for the deaths of thousands of people. And many of them were Christians. What were the Christians supposed to do? Be subject. Paul will tell a young pastor on the island of Crete. His name is Titus. He will tell Titus something that he must remind the churches that he oversees about. It's very interesting. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Check this out. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul says, Titus, remind the believers to obey their government leaders. Be an engaged citizen who works for the good of the community and remind them to never malign anybody, especially those in authority. That's what he says. And I'll tell you what, church, in in, in this age of, of social media use, And abuse. Many well-meaning. I believe they're well-meaning. Well-intentioned. Many well-intentioned Christians. Really ought to linger long. Here in Titus 3 verse 2. Rather than unleashing their critical vindictives. Against those who rule over us. I mean. Really. Really. Really, we need to listen to this. Speak no evil of anyone. And yet, sadly, you go onto these social media platforms and and the things that professing Christians say about our government and its leaders, it has no place. It dishonors the Lord and it's embarrassing. We really need to think about this. And use those platforms properly. Such behavior runs completely counter to what we are called to do and be as citizens. Now there is only one scriptural exception that grants a Christian permission permission to disobey the laws that govern. And that is when a law requires us to do what God in his word commands us not to do. Or a law commands us not to do what God is saying, I want you to do. Then we have an exception. In such instances, we have to disobey the laws of mankind in favor of God's higher law. And interestingly enough, but not probably surprising, Peter is at the center of our biblical example for this. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. Peter and John... If you know the moment, they've been forbidden to preach about Jesus by the Jewish religious leadership, the governing authority in religious matters in Jerusalem. Their response to the governing authorities is really interesting. Acts chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. We're not going to do what you say because God has told us in his word, proclaim Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, the same stance. The high priest said, we strictly charged you not to teach in Jesus' name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. It's clear, isn't it? When the government orders us to do the opposite of what God in his word commands us to do, we have no choice but to disobey the government. And then, and then, church, listen very carefully, and then we comply with whatever the government may require as a punishment for disobeying their laws. Did you hear that? So even in the midst of disobeying an authority, because God has told us something else to do, there is submission to the authority and the consequences that it may impose for, for disobeying its laws. And this is what Peter and John did. We must obey God rather than you. Interesting too, this is what the Apostle Paul does. He knew that to preach Jesus meant persecution and arrest for him. He knew that because the authorities said, don't, don't preach Jesus. Well, he preaches Jesus. But the interesting thing is, Paul never resisted arrest. He never resisted. Imprisoned numerous times, put in stocks, in chains, beaten with rods three times, five times, 39 lashes. He never resisted the consequences of obeying God. He submitted to the authorities. For those consequences. Now on your note page. You will see in the middle of the note page there. uh, In blue. Are you with me there? In the middle of the page. There is a website address. In blue. For Open Doors USA. Church family I would just strongly encourage you, if you get a chance, go to this website and read a letter recently written by a Chinese house church pastor who anticipated his imminent arrest. His name is Wang Yi, and uh, he asked his associates to release this letter if he went missing for more than 48 hours. Well, he was arrested on December the 13th for his leadership of the house church in a China, Chinese city. This letter will give you an incredible window into what modern-day real-life application of this, this resistance of a government authority who's telling you to do something that God says you, you aren't to do or to, to not do something that God wants you to do. You will get a wonderful glimpse into what this looks like today. I urge you to go there. Now, one thing I will ask you to do is not go there now on your smartphone, okay? <laughs> don't do not do that. Please don't do that. Stay with me. Stay here. And then pick that up a little later today. Uh, you will be blessed and amazed, and you will realize that there are people out there doing exactly what Peter and Paul and John and others were doing in the first century. Well, it's one thing to... Someone might say, it's one thing if the government commands you to do something the Bible commands you not to do or vice versa, and then you do what God says and you take the consequences for that. It's one thing for that to happen. But what about when the government passes laws and permits things that are clearly wrong? Don't you defy the government and oppose that even if you're not being forced to disobey God personally? Don't you resist that? I mean, certainly, our our government makes laws and permits things that we believe are in direct opposition to God's Word, right? That contradict His values and, and what He has written in His Word. Now, do you think that the Roman government in Peter's day did things that Christians knew to be wrong? Of course they did. There were a whole long list of things like the murder of infant females. Terrible abuse of women, human slaughter as entertainment in the Colosseum, the whole practice of slavery, and on and on and on. Peter says, in all of those places where the government is doing wrong things, what are you supposed to do? Be subject. Be subject. Be subject. In fact, church family, if we want to understand the true extent that our submission to the governing authorities goes, our best example of how to do that is to look to Jesus. Jesus, when he was on earth, was, was murdered by the coming together of two governing authorities, the Jewish ruling body and the Roman government. He lived under their unjust and unrighteous rule his entire life, and yet he never attacked the government. Not one time. He, led a, he never led a protest against their policies or, the, or their laws. He, he never led or participated in an act of civil disobedience. He never led a demonstration against Roman abuses. He never led a march against the sin of the Jewish leadership. He didn't fight back when they murdered John the Baptist. He never even resisted when they violated their own judicial laws at his arrest, his trial, and at his eventual execution. He spoke only about the kingdom of God. He called sinners to repent, come to him, enter his kingdom. He even did that when he's hanging from the cross. And he simply kept entrusting himself to the God who put those authorities in place for that time and for that purpose. He subjected himself to the ruling authorities. Even as he says... I could call down right now legions of angels to defend me if I wanted to. But he didn't. He didn't. He subjected himself. In fact, there is a most interesting scene that unfolds when Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. At a certain moment, if you know this this this, this moment from Scripture, the arresting mob which is the governing authority in that moment they rush into the garden and peter surprise peter steps forward grabs his sword and tries to split the skull of one of the men that's in this mob i mean he genuinely tries to do this but peter's a fisherman he's not a he's not a soldier and so he misses doesn't he and he doesn't split the skull. He just barely grazes the head of this guy and cuts off his ear. This is all in Matthew chapter 26. Now, if ever there was a just cause and a right time to rebel against the governing authorities, you'd think it would be in this moment, right? In this moment. The Son of God is about to be arrested and to be killed. Were the authorities making evil choices motivated by jealous, jealous, wicked intent? Yes. What were they going to do to Jesus? Well, they were going to murder him. They were going to murder the one who was totally innocent. They were going to kill the Messiah. Do you think that was a just cause to defend? Did Jesus want his followers to fight for him in that moment? No. He recognized that the powers that be were ordained by God, and he simply says to Peter after Peter misses Splitting this guy's skull, he says to Peter, a very revealing statement, he says, Peter, if you live by the sword, you will what? You're going to die by the sword. Now I'll tell you what he wasn't saying. He wasn't saying, Peter, if you swing that sword again, somebody's going to swing back and I'm guessing that their sword skills are better than yours. You're going to die. That's not what Jesus says. He was saying, Peter, you take a life, you murder someone here tonight, and I will affirm the right of the government to take your life as the proper extension of their civil authority. You can't murder even for a just cause. You cannot take the law into your own hands. You will die. That's what Jesus was saying. The ruling authorities in that moment were in place by God's appointment. We read that in Romans 13 too. And Jesus went to the cross without resistance knowing that he would be unjustly murdered. He, he better than anyone else, anyone else understood the extent to which our submission to the governing authorities goes. And why? Why church? What's the motive that drives us to this kind of of submissive behavior as a follower of Jesus? Why do we do this? Well, Peter tells us in verse 15, For this is what? That's the will of God. This is the will of God. That by doing good you should put to, to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The Holy Spirit here gives us two motivations. First, submission to the government and its offices and agencies is God's will. Now, you and I both know, if we've been Christians for very long, there are times in our life when we really don't know what God's will is in a, in a given moment or a, a specific situation. But church family, this is not one of those times. We know exactly what God's will is for us as it relates to our submission to the government. We are to obey the government and not to defy it. If we disobey the laws of our land, we dishonor God because those authorities were appointed by him. Are you with me? That's what he says. Peter also says here that by being the very best citizens we can be, respectful and living within the law, even when it's unjust or cruel, we might just cause the hostile to Christianity or those who are opposed to Jesus to rethink that as they see the outworking of a life that's being transformed by faith in Jesus Christ. It becomes evangelism again. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, Peter is not being derogatory here and putting down those who don't follow Jesus yet. He is simply saying they're spiritually foolish. They don't understand how close they are to salvation. They need a savior, but they don't understand. But we can, by being model citizens, show them a transformed life. We can show them Jesus, which is, again, evangelism. that doesn't look like evangelism. As we said at the outset, this is one of the ways we proclaim the excellencies of, of him is by how we live civically. And then Paul in Romans 13:5 supplies a third motive for us. Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience. Now the sake of conscience there simply a reference once again to doing God's will. If we know what God wants us to do, then conscience and heart says let's obey it. Let's do that. But in addition to that, we get a third motive for our submission to government. We avoid God's wrath. Paul here in Romans 13 is thinking about the police who practically speaking are the point of the government spear, right? They're the point of the spear. God says, I've placed this government in authority to maintain order for this society. The police hold up the laws. You obey the laws or you will feel my wrath. Through them. Now, isn't that interesting? It's God's wrath, not the government's, that we feel if we disobey the law. Interesting. But some impassioned, well-intentioned Christian might say, but the government has passed a terrible law and we must violate the law in order to oppose the law. We've got to break it in order to oppose that bad law. Brothers and sisters, let us think carefully before we step into that place. Unless our disobedience comes under that one exception that we noted, then we're adopting an ends justifies the means methodology. There's a bad law, and so we've got to break the law in order to change that bad law. That's an end justifies the means methodology. That's, That's worldly thinking. That's not biblical thinking. We will not accomplish in society anything for God when we violate what God has designed for our conduct in society. Would you agree with that? Some of you may not be sure about that. A God-honoring good end will not be attained by disobeying God. Do you agree with that? It can't. God's in control. As Christians, we can call for change in our Culture. When a, when a bad law exists, we can call for change using lawful means and then we leave the timing for reform to God. That's, that's, our, that's our proper conduct. We honor God as we do his will. We avoid the point of the spear and some may be drawn to Jesus. Those are three great motives for being great citizens. Which brings Peter to the attitude that we as followers of Jesus bring to our citizenship. That's verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, as servants of God. What a great, great statement. Holy Spirit genius right here. First, live as people who are free. Are you free today? Brother, sister in Jesus, are you free You are 100% free. Peter reminds these Christians that, that, that are being hammered by a brutal and repressive government being persecuted by their fellow countrymen for loving Jesus. He says, remember you're free. And he's saying, you're no longer just of this earth. You are citizens of heaven, but you're free from Satan's tyranny and you're free from condemnation and you're free from sin's penalty and from the grave's power and you're free from fear of what men might do or what death could bring. You're free. But he says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Christian, let this be your attitude as you live and you're hostile to Jesus' culture, you're God's servant in this time and in this place. That's your attitude. Just because we're citizens of heaven doesn't mean we can blow off our submission to earthly authorities. In fact, it's just the opposite. We serve our government. We do all we can to promote its proper functioning. Well, what might that mean? Well, it certainly means we pay our taxes, doesn't it? Romans 13 says we, we pay our taxes and we pay all of our taxes, right? Right? right. Okay, great. We, we do that because Romans 13, 6 and 7 says we do that. We, 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 if, if we don't do that, we dishonor God. It's a God thing when we don't pay our taxes. We vote because we can, Right? There's many who can't. But we have a government that that expects us to vote. So we vote. We pray for our government as servants of it. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then very interestingly, who does he pick out? For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. As Christians, we must never be bashing our leaders. We already talked about that because how can we be praying for our leaders and they're good as we are commanded to do if we're tearing them down and mocking them and bashing them on a social media platform. How can we possibly be praying for them? Not possible. Servants of God. What does that mean? Well, perhaps that means we, we serve in the military as an extension of godly citizenship. If the Lord calls us into that, that's how it looks. We, 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 we're part of the military. Or in some other public office or agency or maybe a local school board or a city council or as a sheriff, or a first responder, or a community volunteer. I mean, it it can look like a lot of different things. All these arenas desperately need servant citizens. And we're called to be that. As followers of Jesus, Peter calls us to use our spiritual freedom to good earthly ends. Not as a license for rebellion, but as a mandate to serve. That's our attitude. So citizenship evangelism. Peter has given us a command. He's told us how far it reaches, what the motives are, and what our attitude is to be. Then he wraps it all up in one moment with one sentence. We'll call it the bottom line, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and once again, oh, yeah, honor the emperor. (laughs) IBC family, here's our citizenship theology in a single sentence. Four dimensions of our life. Honor everyone. What does everyone mean? Everyone. Everyone. All are image bearers of God. We talked about a a few few Sundays ago about the, the unborn. They bear the image of God, so we seek to protect them. We're all image bearers. All deserve honor if we're citizens of God. And in this, in this land, that means without respect to, to color or race or education or economic station or physical ability, whether the king or the slave, it doesn't matter. We honor everyone. That's what great citizens do. Can you imagine a society where that was a belief held by all the citizens? We honor each other. Peter says, Christians, you be those citizens. Love the brotherhood. Who are the brotherhood? We are that, right? So we're, we're to love each other. Love the brotherhood. Jesus said, this is how the world's going to know you belong to me if you love one another. And out of that love for each other, there's this unity that the community that you're a part of cannot miss. Fear God. Of course we fear God. We revere him. We obey what he says. And he's told us what biblical citizenship looks like, so we do that. We revere God. We're going to trust God and we're going to honor the emperor even when the emperor is Nero. Honor the emperor. And with that statement, we're going right back up to verse 13 again, aren't we? Because that's where it all started. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In Romans thirteen one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We're right back where we started. Citizenship evangelism. Evangelism it doesn't look like evangelism. But it truly is. May we, church family, may we be the best citizens that Idlewild has. May we be that who knows? someone may be drawn by virtue of our citizenship to hear about the king who is above all kings because they've been watching us be good citizens. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, you have not minced words today, and you never do, but certainly today you've been crystal clear with us. You've told us what we are to do, You've told us how far the reach of this command goes. You have given us our motive and laid before us the attitude that we're supposed to have. Thank you for the gift of your word today and the challenge to think about being great citizens of a great country. To the end that you'd be glorified, help us to live out these truths, not just be hearers of them, but doers of them. To the end that some might be saved. And you be glorified. We'll say thanks in Jesus' strong name. And all God's citizens said, Amen.